Hi, everybody. Welcome to another PR Masters podcast, where you get to hear the stories and wisdom of our industry's most successful leaders and legends. And today is podcast number 77. I'm Arch Stevens, your host, and I'm pleased to report that today's guest is certainly in the description of one of the legends and successful leaders of our industry. And I'm so delighted that she could join us today. She is Jen Prosek. And Jen, as you probably know, is the founder and managing partner of Prosec Partners, which is a leading integrated marketing and communications firm with offices in New York, London, Boston, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Palm Beach, Fairfield, and Cape Town. Gosh, you're all over the place, Jen. (laughs) The The firm ranks among the top financial communications consultancies in the U.S. and the U.K., Prosec Partners was named among Forbes America's Best PR Agencies in 2021, has been listed as an Inc. 5,000 fastest growing company for a decade, and is ranked among the top 25 firms on New York Observer's PR power list. Jennifer was also listed personally among insiders' list of top financial communicators in the United States and on the Wall Street Journal's most influential decision makers list in 2022. Now, a little bit about Jennifer herself. She is a published author, and she is a frequent speaker. And Army of Entrepreneurs, which is her first book, received praise from Columbia Business School, Wharton, and Instead. Her second book, Raising Can-Do Kids, wow, co-authored with Richard Rendy, Ph.D., was published by Penguin Random House in 2015. And she is the co-president of the Columbia Business School Women's Circle, She's on the board of directors of British American Business and sits on the advisory board of Signal Artificial Intelligence, AI, and iConnections. She is also a venture investor in a number of communications technology platforms, including Quoted. Jennifer received her MBA from Columbia University and a BA in English Literature. I was an English major, too. A BA in English Literature from Miami University. So, Jen Prosek, welcome to PR Masses. It's so great to have you here with us. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So, Jen, to get started, it's clear that your agency has been one of the hottest tickets in town these past 10 years, at least these past 10 years. It's hovering near $100 million in revenue. And, in fact, you may already have hit that mark as we speak. Well, you'll tell us in just a moment. And you're somewhere in the range of 350 employees. So that's an extraordinary accomplishment. Did you ever think that you'd achieve the level of success you have? Um, In a word, no, absolutely not. Um, (laughs) The agency has um, definitely uh, exceeded my expectations. Tell us how you got started in public relations. Most of the uh, PR masters I have talked to, it's either accidental or planned. Which category are you in? So I... um, I was lucky enough to have an internship in PR. That was pretty random, but that opened my eyes to the profession, and I was sure at a pretty early age, you know, that this was for me. My first PR internship was with a small fashion industry. So I wasn't sure I wanted to pursue fashion PR, but I definitely loved communications. And, um, you know, I was an English major, so my parents had told me, you know, you better get some work experience, which was pretty good advice. So thankfully, I accidentally found the world of public relations. Um, I am a true PR startup entrepreneur. I I had one job before this, and it was in market research. So as the story goes, um, 
I had graduated college in a recession, and there were literally no job openings um, in the large agencies in New York, which is where I wanted to work. And I took the job that was offered to me in market research, and I started to network in hopes of getting a communications job. I moved back in with my parents in Connecticut. And through that networking, I I met a gentleman named Dan Jacobs, who was um, the head of communications at GE Capital. And um, he did not love corporate life, and he had some gigs on the side, and he planned just to start a little consultancy. And I met him and he asked, you know, would you like to come work with me? I'm, I'm just about to, to leave and, and, and do this thing. Um, in no way, shape or form did I really want to do that. Um, I wanted to go to New York City. I wanted to work for a big firm. I wanted to be in a training program, just like people in their 20s want. Um, I didn't want to work for one guy in Connecticut who didn't even have an office yet. But I decided okay. I would do it because I would get some experience in my chosen profession. And that was the beginning of my story. Wow. I can keep going if you want. <laughs> yeah, no, please keep going. You're the person we want to hear. You are a role right. model, obviously, in our industry. Okay. So I'll keep going. So I go to work for Dan, um, and I'm employee number one. And, um, you know, my plan was to get as much experience as possible and get out of Dodge and get back to New York City and to a big firm. So after a couple of years, the recession went away. The market turned. We had a couple employees, um, and I had every intention of leaving. And uh, Dan said to me, I think you're a great talent. Let's shut down my firm and open our firm and be 50-50 partners. I was 24 years old. Um, wow. I am a first-generation American. My parents are not from this country. Um, they were teachers. I did not grow up in the world of business, so I didn't even know what ownership or equity really meant. Um, but I knew not to turn it down because I didn't have my job offer in New York City yet. So I said yes. We both put in $10,000. We became 50-50 partners. And, um, you know, um, I continued to network for, for my job in the city. Um, and we were 50-50 partners pretty much of a nothing. You know, our clients were local. Um, I had some very funny clients at the beginning of my career. They looked nothing like the clients I have today. Um, and I was interviewing in New York. Um, and oddly enough, at 24, I end up in the North American CEO's office of Fleischman Hillard on this interview process, which is really strange. But um, a, a man by the name of Jan Van Meter was uh, the North American CEO. Yeah, I remember, and I remember he, him. Yeah, he was a legend. And uh, he shut the door and looked me in the eye and said, look, you've got the job here. Everybody thinks you're great. But I'm going to tell you what I'd tell my daughter. Why don't you put your head down, grow that firm, and sell it to us one day? Why don't you do that? <laughs> and I was completely blown off my chair um, I said, you know, can you do that? <laughs> and he said, yes, you can do that. <laughs> and so I walked out of the off office with a job offer from Fleischman Hillard, but I decided I would turn that down and take Jan Meter, Meter's advice. So I went back to my desk in Connecticut with my, with our three employees and our, you know, regional clients, and I decided um, I wanted to really build a world-class global agency one day. And, um, you know, again, that was the beginning on the point of Jan Van Meter, um, every day since that day I had on my list, I must go back to Jan Van Meter and thank him. You know, um, he really was a catalyst to my 
trajectory and I never got to it. And he passed away two years ago. Mm. Um, And I was devastated, you know, that I never thanked him. So I don't know if you saw, I wrote in PR week, a story about Jan. So I think I, I righted the karma, but he was a very special guy. So take us from, from that point on, how did you build a global firm? You know, you yeah. had no experience uh, having done that before. Obviously, it, it appears that everybody regarded you as a major talent, including Jan. And I think you must have begun to think about that yourself in terms of your skills and capabilities and obviously your vision for the future. But how did you do it? You're not going to 100 million. Yeah. So I'm 24. We have three employees. Um, gosh, I don't even know what the revenues would have been. They would have been pretty small. Um, and, you know, I did not come, you know, most people start firms where they've worked somewhere impressive and they build a network and, you know, they leave and they start their thing that I was the opposite, no network, no experience, <laughs> no nothing. But I was determined that um, I wanted to build uh, the kind of firm I wanted to join. You know, I wanted to build, you know, build a, a large global firm one day. By the way, Dan, my partner, wanted the opposite. He just wanted a nice, tiny little thing that was close to his house (laughs) that he could control. So he and I sort of, um, we had the best partnership ever, but like we had two different visions and I wanted world domination and he just wanted to be near his home and, (laughs) and make a paycheck. So, but anyway, I had to figure out like, you know, what, where's the white space? Like, what are we going to build? And at that time in Fairfield County, Connecticut, uh, there were a lot of private equity firms and hedge funds and trading floors and financial firms moving to Greenwich and Stanford and Darien, Connecticut. And we noticed that and we were right in their backyard. And we said, you know, I said, hey, I don't know anything about finance, but like these guys are moving to our backyard. I wonder if they'll hire us. And, um, you know, it's kind of hard to work for titans of finance without any experience. Um, so the reason that was a white space too was, you know, financial firms at the time, their, their entire point of view was like, keep your head down, stay under the parapet, do not engage with stakeholders. So all the job, all the work in financial services by the existing players was on defense and special situations. There was no offense. There was no brand building. There was no appreciation for brand, but I sort of said, wow, if that whole industry changes its mind one day and goes to the office. Like there's, there's no one there. Um, but how was I with my little English major and no experience and no network going to convince the Titans of finance to work with us um, while working at the agency on the clients I had um, the clever idea that I did not have my roommate at the time had was, you know, why didn't you get an MBA in finance and everyone, you know, you'll have basically the same degree as your clients and, you know, hardly anyone in communications has an MBA in finance. I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. But I hardly took any math. <laughs> I'm an English major. <laughs> so I brushed up on my math. I took the GMAT and I um, got into Columbia Business School, which I did the part-time program so I could keep running the agency. And the idea was, you know, I can potentially uh, acquire a credential that will give me a little bit of a leg up as a young woman trying to trying to do this. Um, and at the time, I wasn't even sure I would stay in communications because, you know, everyone who gets their MBA, you know, goes into investment banking or consulting or something like that is certainly out of Columbia. 
Um, but I stuck with it and I decided I was going to pursue finance, financial comms. So that was probably the catalyst uh, to opening an office in New York. Once I graduated, I had a network um, and, you know, sort of the rest is history, but of course a lot of things happened along the way. Um, my partner decided to retire by the time I was 27. So I bought him out and ended up with the whole agency and an MBA. But again, we were probably eight people at the time, so it's pretty small. I'll take a breath there. <laughs> <laughs> How many people do you have now? So we have almost 400. So, wow. you know, what happened along the way was this really bad idea, which was, you know, let's convince financial companies to care about their brand and be proactive about managing their brand and reputation. That was 10 years before its time, but that's what we were selling pretty much. And um, when the financial crisis hit and every firm in finance had a black eye reputationally, yeah. famously firms like Goldman Sachs decided, hey, this defense stuff doesn't work anymore. Let's go on the offense. And they hired famously hired folks like Jake Seward out of the White House, and Jake sort of taught Goldman Sachs how to go on the offense and engage with stakeholders. And once Goldman did that and was successful, I think they triggered the market. And, you know, I think the entire market started to change its, its sort of approach to brand and communications. Um, and, and all of a sudden, firms started to say, hey, let's go on the offense and spend money on brand. That had really not happened before outside of like consumer banks. Um, so that was really the moment that ProSec took off because a lot of firms went to the market and said, who does this brand building stuff in finance? And there was almost, there was zero. It was just us. Mm, 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 so mm. the strategy was like, get them on the offense and then get them on the defense. So, you know, get them to be partners with us on, offense and then pick up crisis and special situations and deal communications and everything else that was already mature in the market. And that strategy obviously worked. So that's been the sort of, that's why we ended up um, growing the way that we did. You know, when you were an English major, and by the way, you know, I commiserate with you because I, no, I'm not, that's probably the wrong word, but I was an English major also, you know, and when I majored in English, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, you know, in terms of my career, and I yes. kind of fell into public relations accidentally. I suspect that when you were an English major, the last word you probably ever heard of was public relations. What did you think you might do while you were an English major? And what was your reason for being an English major? I loved reading and writing, basically, and okay. um, and I loved being an English major. And I thought I would go into publishing. That's what I thought I would do. And um, my parents lived next door to a very notable author. And um, one day I ran into her, like, at the mailbox, and I said, I want to be in publishing. And she looked at me kind of sideways, and she said, really? Um, I said, really? I mean, you're a famous author. Like, you must know a lot about publishing. Give me some advice. She said, I'll leave something for you in the mailbox. So she left in my mailbox of my parents' house this, uh, you know, one yellow legal page of contacts. It was her agent, her publisher, and a few oh. other people that were very high level in the publishing world. And she said, take them all out for coffee, which I did. 
Um, and 80% of them said the golden age of publishing is over. Do not go there. <laughs> so I abandoned the idea of publishing. And um, luckily, again, I had the accidental internship in, in public relations, and that, that really hooked me. Uh, yeah. It's funny because I started my career in publishing also. I became a textbook editor at Prentice Hall. And while there, I started getting tired of uh, proofreading and copy editing, you know, and I didn't see where a career could be built doing that. And then a friend of mine in the personnel department told me that there was an opening in the corporate public relations department at Prentice Hall. And I said, what's public relations? But I got the job and for me, the rest Perfect. was history. So it's interesting yeah. how we both were English majors and went uh, in a certain direction after that. Yes. The only thing I'd say to English majors um, as advice and I'd even say it for people who plan to go in PR, take enough math. You know, I was mathless um, yeah, and yeah. happily mathless. And then if you want to do certain things and if you want to be in the corporate world or the finance world, you need to understand the language of their, that. And that usually has some finance or accounting or statistics or something. Um, it's really, really important. And if you want to go to graduate school and you're mathless, especially if you want to go to business school, it's it's a very hard road. I mean, Columbia accepted me conditionally. I had so little math in my background. I did well in the GMAT, but I had so little math in my background. They said, you need to go to a college program, like a summer college program, pick statistics, finance, accounting, whatever you want, but you got to get an A and show us you can because like it's going to be too rigorous for you otherwise. And I went to like a community college and took a stats class and got an A <laughs> and, you know, got myself in. But I always say like, you know, um, grit and hustle is the answer to any entrepreneurs. How did you, how were you successful? I mean, for the first 10 years of my business, I worked Saturday and Sunday all day, all course, day long, happily, sure. happily. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. but that's kind of what it takes. Um, but even, you know, everything in my life, I've sort of had to go in the back door, but it, it would have been nice to pick up a few, you know, quantitative classes in college so that I didn't have to go through that torturous experience of proving <laughs> to Columbia I could hack it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it appears that at this stage of the game, you are f totally fluent in the world of finance and uh, the capital markets and all of that kind of thing. Would you yes. say that is the case? I suspect that, you know, the, given the here and now, that it is something that you obviously have become expert in. Yes. I mean, I could say that um, I'm lucky I work with um, the best investors of the world, bar none, um, some of the smartest people in the world. So in addition to my schooling, um, I've been lucky to walk the halls of finance companies for, you know, 25 years. And that's taught me a lot. I would also say, you know, I run a business um, and I'm living and breathing investments and, you know, the things that you have to running a business. So I think finally, I would say, yes, I'm pretty fluent. Um, you could always learn more in life. So I don't want to sort of overstate that. But um, my clients probably teach me the most um, every single day, which is Pretty, pretty awesome place to be. Well, you know, you have focused on financial and corporate communications, and you outlined to us, of course, the reason that this came about, which is, of course, smart business, being in Connecticut and seeing all those firms around you. But why do clients choose your firm now and not others? Yeah, so 
you know, finance is still our main squeeze. I think it's what we're famous for, but we do do corporate communications for many, many different industries. I would say why do clients hire us? It depends what type of client it is, but I think for the most part, um, clients still hire us because of our offense DNA and our creativity. You know, I used to joke when people said, what's the strategy for your firm? I'd say to bring the fabulous to finance, naturally. Um, bringing the fabulous to finance meant I wanted the most passionate, creative, proactive group of people in the finance sector. And generally speaking, the DNA of a finance communications firm is defense because they historically have made their money on deals, crises, and special situations. We do that work too, but we have a very offense DNA. So again, the creativity, the passion, the proactivity, and even in the defense work, even in the crisis work we do and the M&A work we do and the special fits work we do, we look at it differently because we're an offense player, not a defense player. And I think that's attractive right now in the market. Um, I think defense was the style for a very long time. Offense is the style now. Like everyone knows nothing happens unless you make it happen. Nothing happens unless you manage it, right? Um, so I think that's attractive to clients. Um, I think the depth of expertise is attractive to clients. You know, we have a highly integrated firm, so we have creative and brand and digital and paid advertising and all that. And um, the clients in the complicated sectors love the depth of our expertise plus the creativity or plus the branding work or plus, you know. So I think if you can marry true creativity or brand work or marketing work with the act, the business acumen that's super deep, that's kind of just hard to find. So I think people hire us for that. Um, and I think people still hire us. We're independent and we feel independent. You know, the people that work on the business own the place. And I think there is this sort of like entrepreneurial ownership feel to the culture and the team. So I think those are hopefully just a few reasons people hire us, but th those are a few reasons. Yeah. So here you are, you've reached a milestone in the growth of your agency, probably 15 or so years ago, not terribly expected, but here you are. Where do you go from here, Jen? You know, what are the next yeah. steps in the growth and, and evolution of your agency? I mean, you have a number of possibilities. You know, you can continue to grow. You can make acquisitions through through me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is what I do. You can, you know, hook up with a, a private equity firm and uh, have them, you know, fund greater growth yeah. and uh, reach 500 million. So what's your dream? What's your vision? Because you're in a good place right now. Yeah. I always say like, I want to be doing this for as long as it's fun and we're grow growing. I'm, I'm a growth oriented person. I like progress. I would say I'm a progress addict, so I can't stay in the same place for too long. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, we will remain independent for the foreseeable future. Um, we'll keep building upon um, the integrated model and keep adding solutions. You know, our clients, you know, if you think about it, three years ago, our clients didn't really need as much ESG, DNI, and a few other things. We are adding sort of different product every year to the solution set because we really want to surround sound our clients with everything they need. So that's, that's a journey. Um, I would say that, you know, we have been um, a firm very focused on the transatlantic corridor. So I would say about 80% of our 
clients really prioritize New York and London, but um, you know, we will get more global. You know, we're opening an office in Abu Dhabi. We have partners mm-hmm. all over Asia, but we'll probably hire some of our own folks there too. So, you know, we'll we'll add some dots on the map and become a little more global. Um, but you know, there's so much runway for growth for the sectors that we're in. You know, a full half of our clients are in the private markets. So, you know, private equity hedge funds private asset managers, credit firms, those guys are what I call the emerging market of marketing, meaning they are still an emerging market in what we do, meaning just a few years ago, did that sector decide to get on the front foot? So they're pouring new dollars into, you know, integrated marketing and communications. They are hiring CCOs for the first time internally. So that emerging market will continue to emerge for another five plus years. So there'll be a lot of growth continuing in that world. So we're going to continue trying to be the dominant firm in that space. And then, you know, we work for very rigorous people. You know, the founders in finance are no joke. They are rigorous entrepreneurs. The rigor that we have acquired uh, makes us really, really, really good on the corporate side. <laughs> so we want to grow our yeah. corporate side too, our corporate communications business. Yeah. So, you know, we work for firms like LabCorp and Levi's and Hertz, and we do their corporate communications and financial communications and investor relations. We want to continue that journey. There's a lot of corporates that could use our help. So um, there's a lot of places to grow. You know, I always say, you know, that the issue is bigger isn't always better. So hanging on to your special culture is the name of the game. So the primary focus is like scale, but don't lose the culture. Don't lose the magic. And and the culture is all about grit, grit hustle, and humanity. It's about entrepreneurship. Um, it's about passion and energy. And we've got to hold on to all of that um, if we're going to maintain our status, you know, in the market. So that all of that's in the plan. <laughs> So how deeply are you into you know, social media, online marketing, digital interactive, and AI? Yeah. Um, digital and social is a huge part of our world. Um, it has been for a very long time and will continue to be. I would say, you know, we hired a brilliant marketer who really has built out our paid social and paid digital advertising capabilities. So that's really exciting. But Again, I think I think that's a growth area, but um, in some ways it's a mature area, um, but some ways it's a growth area. Um, so that's interesting. As you know, I sit on the board of Signal AI. Signal AI works with a lot of major corporations on its analytics, data measurement systems, and communications. Um, I'm I love that partnership because I like to see. You know, I like to know what's going on in AI communications, and they keep me very current in addition to what we do in-house. Um, we look at what they do for major companies globally, and it's really exciting. I mean, um, their founder talks about uh, the communications co-pilot. That's his way of saying that's what AI is going to do, right? It's going to be a communications co-pilot. So the, the sort of counselor or, um, you know, um, consultant is going to have the data and analytics and AI capabilities all the way along the way on every decision we make. So it's almost like a co-pilot 
in the future. And I think that's a cool way of putting it. And you can see how powerful that would be. So instead of, you know, in a crisis situation, just going from your experience, you know, you will know that in these 5 million situations, when you do this, this happens. And that's the AI co-pilot making you better. It's sort of like what Watson did for, you know, healthcare and surgeries. Um, mm. So that's really exciting. Um, you know, they're already using AI in many applications, but the other thing they're working on is, of course, predictive AI. Um, they're working with chief risk officers, for instance, and a lot of uh, sort of, you know, systems that will alert you to, um, you know, uh, risk proactively by using AI. So there's a, there's a lot in the near term in our business that's going to be um, made possible through AI. And I'm staying on top of all of it because I'm very excited about it. And I want to make sure we don't get left behind. <laughs> well, it seems to me that you're going to be a $200 million firm within a reasonable amount of time. Oh, yes. I think $200 million is going to be in our grasp. We'll see what happens after that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jen, you know, when you were in college, we all grow and mature, you know, at that point in our lives. Did you ever think, this is going to sound like a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Did you ever think that you were as smart as you have obviously demonstrated and how you obviously grew as an individual, as, as a business leader, as a visionary? Did you ever think you had that in you when you were like in college and in your early 20s? No way. <laughs> no way. Um, okay. I was a um, high school student that uh, let's just say I had a good time in high school. Um, I was a pretty good student, but I didn't apply myself 100%. You know, I went to a decent undergrad, but it really wasn't till my second year of college that I got very serious about my future and doing well, doing better um, academically. Um, you know, my brother, who's six years younger than me, was the opposite. He was extremely dedicated to his academics very talented and as a public school kid got himself into Yale University and I remember going to Yale University and visiting him and his two roommates um, one was already uh, writing for the op-ed page of the St. Louis Dispatch while he was in high school and the wow. other had already written three math, math textbooks that were published and I'm like oh my god I, I had this like moment where I'm like I need to go, I need to go to school like this. I need to have access to people like this. I need, I just had this total burst of disappointment and inspiration, like disappointment, disappointment that I didn't, I wasn't working to my full potential and I knew it academically and um, what was actually out there. So again, you know, let me underscore, I'm first generation American. My parents are immigrants. The first day I went to college was the first time I'd seen the college. Um, so, you know, I always say I grew up like a weed. My parents were very smart, but, you know, they were new to the country. So this experience with my brother going to Yale was like this, this like, wow moment. And that was the moment in sophomore year, I decided I need to get A's. I need to work hard. I need to potentially go to a graduate school one day. I, I really want to work hard. But it was that it wasn't until that moment. But I still in that moment did not know I would be a business owner. 
or know I would be an entrepreneur or think I could have done something like this. So I always tell parents who are kind of worried that their kid didn't start out so strong that, you know, sometimes you're a late bloomer. Sometimes it comes later. Sometimes you have to be inspired by something along the way. Um, but, you know, I think if you look at most of the, a lot of the entrepreneurs I know, they have similar stories. They, you know, they, they sort of had to apply a lot of grit and hustle and get serious at a certain point yeah. along the way. So then I, I have just a few more questions for you. I know you're mm -hmm. awfully busy and want to get back to, uh, you know, getting getting as close as possible to the next 200 million. You know, so <laughs> yeah. I ask you just a few more questions. First of all, sure. what, is, what what is your view of the overall public relations agency world? Where do you think it is in contemporary life, and and what else do you think it needs to do? Mm, such a good question. Um, I think that agencies. Um, you know, to me, I think you have to keep evolving and throwing out the playbook and reinventing yourself. I mean, if you're going to be a great agency, you have to be 50 steps ahead of your client, right? So that's just sort of rule number one. And your people have to be 50 steps in front of their client. So, um, you know, I think you have to, first of all, have something very differentiated. But you have to make sure you've got a professional development situation so that your people are constantly adding value to your clients. Um, but, you know, I think the agency world, interestingly, I would have said, hasn't had enough as much entrepreneurship as I would have liked to see. Like in most of my career, I'm like, who are the amazing emerging firms in our space? But I think in the last five years, there's, there's actually been quite a, quite a lot of entrepreneurship. So that's really good to see. Um, so, you know, I think it would be really hard, and this is what I would say because we're a specialist, I think it would be really hard to be everything to all people and um, to make that an offering. Um, so I do think um, some sort of specialization, even if it's broad, um, makes sense to me, um, staying way, way, way in front of the clients. And I think that agencies that will get it right clearly are going to have to be a obsessed with communications technology and what that can do. I think even in today's world, you can get away with being eh in ComTech, eh in technology. It, it, it's happening, but it's still not there. I don't think you're going to be able to get away with that soon. I also think that every agency better be looking at, like, what are the commodity products I sell? And assume that AI and technology are going to wipe all that revenue off. So you have to be looking at how do I get my people to be doing their best and highest use with technology so you don't get crushed. Because if you're selling low-end commodity product, I just don't think those firms will be around for very long um, or be able to get away with charging for those things anymore. So I just think the agencies are going to have to, at some point, really change their games. But, you know, agencies have been sort of doing it as same old way for a very long time. I, I sort of worry about who's going to be able to do that and who isn't. You know, on a panel one site of, of investors in the tech space, um, the moderator asked this question, like, how do you know which firm to invest in? And, you know, one of the people said, if they don't have a digitally curious CEO, forget it. And that just like sat with me, like, I want to be the digitally curious CEO. 
So I would say the best firms are going to be run by the digitally curious CEOs. So it sounds like if you were a race, you just want to be in front of the pack. The most digitally curious CEO, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So one final question, Jen. Mm -hmm. Where do you see Jen Prosek in the years ahead? Oh, gosh. You know, what's really weird, so there was an article recently called Gen X is in charge, like that, you know, basically saying Generation X are now going to be the majority of CEOs, which is true. So I wrote this little newsletter article called Gen X is in charge, J-E-N, get it? Right. But I am, I I am extremely Gen X. I mean, I'm, I'm the stereotypical Gen Xer. And what's weird about that is I'm finally at the age you should be to run this firm. I've never been at the age you should be to run a firm, you know? (laughs) So I'm sort of getting comfortable with the fact that I'm actually seasoned now, you know? Like what's next for me? You know, I just want to do this and love it, you know, for, for a very long time. I think that for me, one of the things I'm focused on in addition to running ProSec is being an investor myself. I really love venture capital investing. I really love, you know, a lot of my clients do what they call GP stakes, which is like, you know, sort of small minority stakes in emerging companies that hopefully will build. Um, I have about six GP stakes now of my own. So I want to become my clients, right? I want to become an investor. (laughs) And I don't mean in the stock market, I mean, the private markets. And I'm along, I'm sort of early in that journey. So that's the part of the next 10 years that I'm sort of excited to do. Um, I want to invest in other managers in our space, managers meeting, you know, PR, brilliant PR people. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of going to be an interesting um, thing to develop. Wow, you are one busy leader in our industry, and obviously you go well beyond the, you know, the public relations industry itself. Gosh, Jen, it's been a real, real pleasure chatting with you this morning, and I thank you so much you know, for joining us. I hope you had some fun here, and I wish you continued success because, obviously, that's where you're headed anyway. So um, I'll just be one more person who will continue to watch your career, watch uh, the growth of your organization, and say she is a leader in our public relations industry. So thank you so much, Jen. Thank you. This has been fun. I really appreciate it. So on behalf of PR Masters podcast listeners, everybody, I thank you for joining us today. You've given a great deal of time, hopefully, to listen to one of our industry leaders. And, of course, I've always been a great fan of Jennifer Prosek. So I'd also like to thank Faye Shapiro, who is the publisher and editor-in-chief of Compro, for uh, its support of these past podcasts, which are now in their fourth year. So thank you all for joining us. This is Art Stevens, your host, signing off. So until next time, be well. Mm-hmm.